Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this program, we bring you a fascinating panel discussion centred around a recent policy options paper from the college, written by Dr. Cassandra Steer. It's called Australia as a Space Power, Combining Civil, Defence and Diplomatic Efforts. But before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Now let's get into it, to infinity and beyond. I'm Dale Stanley from the Futures Hub at the National Security College. It's a pleasure to be chairing a small panel discussion today on Australia as a space power. A very warm welcome to my three guests, Dr. Cassandra Steer, James Brown and Catherine Manstead. It's great to have you here. Dr. Cassandra Steer is a mission specialist with the ANU Institute of Space, or InSpace, and a senior lecturer at the College of Law, specialising in space law, space security, and international law. Dr. Steer has more than a decade of international experience teaching at universities in Australia, Europe, North America, and South America, and brings a comparative perspective to all her research and teaching. Welcome, Cassandra. Thanks for having us, and I'm also grateful to James and Catherine for joining in on this conversation. James Brown is the CEO of the Space Industry Association of Australia, Australia's peak body for the space economy. The association is a nationwide organisation formed to promote the growth of the Australian space sector and takes a leading role in advising government on behalf of the space industry. Welcome, James. Hi. Catherine Manstead is a visiting fellow at the ANU National Security College and is also a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Welcome, Catherine. Good to be here. Cassandra just recently published a really thought-provoking NSC policy options paper entitled Australia as a Space Power, Combining Civil Defence and Diplomatic Efforts. If you want to get your hands on this paper, take a look in the show notes. I might start with you, Cassandra, if I could. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about why it is in Australia's national interest that space remains stable, accessible and usable, as you talk about in your paper? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the key reason is because we all depend on space. And I think most people don't realise the extent to which we do on a daily basis. When we use GPS to find our way to a cafe, right? But GPS is used also for civil uh, aviation, for naval navigation. Uh, And then 
satellites that are providing precision timing are extremely important. Every time you use your key card to get money out of the ATM, um, the stock market and banking, we use satellites to track bushfires for search and rescue, um, international communications, probably people who are listening to this podcast are using space-based technologies to do so. Uh, and of course, militaries depend on space for all of those same kinds of technologies and for tracking each other's troops and adversaries, troops for intelligence for GPS-guided weapons, uh, unpiloted vehicles, you name it. Um, and so space is just so integral to our 21st century lives, and it's really integral for strategic and security reasons. Um, and space itself has become a strategic domain because of that. So if you want to take out your adversary's eyes and ears or even compromise them, you do that in space. Um, so it's become a strategic domain unto itself. There's concerns about threats to those technologies. Um, but it's also just important to our daily lives. And we really need to think about, we need to think about space the way we think about a lot of other technologies. It's critical to our daily lives. It's critical to our security. And that's why we need to have better awareness across government about these issues as well. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, James, I might go to you if I, if I may. Could you tell us a little bit um, about the role of the Space Industry Association and how you work with government and whether you have any views on um, why space should remain a stable, accessible and usable um, area for all nations? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I really enjoyed this paper. I think it's comprehensive and it's timely. Uh, it's, it's the right conversation to be having about how we organise for space at the moment. Um, the Space Industry Association was set up nearly 30 years ago and for 25 years, it had one simple ask of government, and that was to set up a space agency. And um, 25 years of knocking on the door, 2017, we, we hosted the world's largest space conference in Adelaide, uh, and the government agreed to set up a space agency and commit some money to developing an industry. And we've just seen explosive growth since then. So we now have more than 200 member companies uh, we, we're interested not only to, to see the industry develop, but to make sure that Australia plays the right role as a space power, uh, to make sure that the government has a strategic policy for space that's not just a defence space strategy and not just a civilian space strategy. And, and one of the things I really liked about Cassandra's paper is the comparison to the journey that government's been on with cyber security policy. So, you know, and I, I think it's a very apt comparison where we're really now looking at how do we educate government to coordinate itself on space and with industry uh, and what are the right policy mechanisms to do that. Yeah, that's a great segue into some of the issues we were going to explore today on, on cyber and lessons that we can learn. Um, you, you touched a little bit on strategy and I think there are some lessons that we can learn from the cyber and critical technology engagement strategy that was recently released from government. Um I don't know if, um, Catherine, you might like to talk a little bit about where sort of government's position currently. I know strategies have been described as a little piecemeal with the Australian Space Agency's space strategy and the work that the Department of Defence is doing. But what can we learn from the last five to ten years um, from cyber and how might we apply that to space? So absolutely, I think, I mean, all analogies are, of course, fraught. There are pros and cons in engaging with them. But I think this is a really apt one. Um, and so the strategy uh, you referred to there, Dale, is put out by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia. It's our newly minted um, cyber and critical technologies engagement strategy. And I think it's fair to say that Australia has really hit its stride in terms of positioning itself 
as an advocate on the international stage uh, for how Australia wants to see the future of both cyberspace and critical technologies. And in almost uh, taking a stand, I'd say, in terms of the values and the interests that Australia wants to protect in cyberspace and in the realm of critical technology. And that is a space that I think Australia occupies well. We, throughout history, do well with creative um, and entrepreneuring diplomacy. Uh, and it's not to say, you know, Australia will never be the main creator of a lot of the critical technologies of the future. That's not the, 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 that's not the space we're in. We are a middle player in all of this, but we can shape uh, diplomatic norms, we can be part of the conversation and we can have really productive relationships with other countries and also with industry. And I think that's where the analogy works best when comparing cyber to space, um, that this is not just a game for states to play and it's not, as James was saying before, just a defence or a military issue. It's something that is inherently multi-stakeholder and it is multipolar. So in cyber, um, there might be a tendency or in any of these technology issues, there's sometimes a tendency to look at this through the lens of US-China technology competition, for instance. But I think that would be a mistake because here um, the players, those who who are kind of shaping the future and those who are shaped by the future of both cyber and space are not just states and they're not just the big players. They're everyday citizens, they're businesses, they're, they're industry, and they're a range of countries that have really potent uh, space industry and space government capabilities um, that they can bring to the table here as well. Mm, I think one of the things I took from your paper, Cassandra, was that there's a real opportunity here for Australia to really step up and, um, you know, develop strong policies and strategies and work with industry. And we know that the Australian Space Agency is seeking to create 20,000 jobs um, by 2030. If we could delve a little deeper into this idea of values um, as we look to grow, what are the values that we think Australia should be promoting in this area? Cassandra? So I think that's the perfect question to be asking, which isn't currently being asked, right? So defence is asking that question for itself. It's writing its space strategy at the moment. Uh, it's looking to what kind of strategic position it wants to, to take in, in this domain, in the strategic domain. Um, but there's not a huge or certainly not an explicit conversation going on about what are Australia's values. Um, and just to go back to what uh, Catherine was just saying about, you know, it's, it, this is multi-stakeholder, and I know that's another term that raises many eyebrows and can be fraught, but it is multi-stakeholder um, and it's international. And and we are in a new multipolar era of history, right? It's the end of the American century. The U.S. media in particular is very keen to paint a new Cold War type scenario between itself and China, but the reality is it's very much a multipolar um, political, geopolitical reality. And so middle powers, traditional middle powers and new middle powers have an enormous role to play right now. Um, and space, because of how critical it is to our 21st century lives, is something that we should all be really thinking about is how does this fit in with our values as a nation? So there's some important moves that Australia has been taking. In particular, if we think about, you know, it's I think another helpful kind of uh, alliteration for space is uh, we have to think about safety, security and sustainability. So 
safety is an issue because of the amount of space traffic we have. My guess is around about 3,800 operational satellites at the moment. I don't know, James, if you have a different number, but that number changes every two weeks at the moment because SpaceX is launching constantly. Um, 128 million pieces of debris down to about a millimeter, we think, estimated. And this stuff in the lower orbits is orbiting at seven kilometers a second, so 10 times faster than a bullet. So something the size of a fleck of paint can be lethal to a satellite. Um, so there's safety issues around that that we need to be managing um, in terms of what it is we are approving to launch or to operate and, and how we're doing that nationally as well as internationally. Then there's all the security issues, the kinds of threats that we might find our, our own systems or systems we rely on uh, are being threatened by, um, which might be actual anti-satellite missile tests. Some countries have tested that. China, the US and India recently have tested that. But the bigger threats are things like um, non-kinetic temporary interruptions with a signal or uh, jamming a signal or dazzling a satellite. And it's very hard to attribute whether a failure to a satellite was because of a piece of debris or a, a, a deliberate interference, harmful interference. And then sustain sustainability, because of how dependent we are on this space environment and all of those issues that I just mentioned about, about space traffic management and debris and these counter space threats, we need to be thinking intergenerationally about this. We need to be thinking long-term. So those really are the three key values that you see in academia and you see in the space community amongst those whose uh, technologies depend on us thinking that way, but we're not seeing it enough explicitly in government. And there have been moves internationally. So some of the things Australia has been doing a great job on is um, co-sponsorship of this recent UN General Assembly resolution uh, 7536, which is uh, reducing space threats through norms, principles and rules. And Australia was very key in supporting the UK on that. So we are taking steps, but we don't have enough of a national conversation about what our values are or what they should be. And that needs to include industry as much as it's including defence and our space agency and DFAT and all of these different government agencies. And then also, you know, the, the basic the general public who have a vested interest in this. Mm. Uh, thank you. James, did you want to talk a little bit about the role of industry in creating those sort of space norms and values and also give us a sense of Australia's sovereign capabilities in space? What's actually out there that's ours? <laughs> no, and look, Cassandra was spot on. So there's 3,372 satellites in space at the moment and that number's going to over 100,000 in the next five years, which will give you a sense of the scale of what we're doing. Um, you know, it's interesting because... I'm, I'm a newcomer to this industry. I, I did some research uh, and um, some thinking about what small space would mean for, for space uh, for Australia about seven years ago. And now, you know, getting to know people across the space industry in Australia, it's, a, it's an industry that's very much based in science and it draws a lot of its values for science, so from science. So very collegiate, very responsible, principles-based, um, evidence-based and I think that really shapes the nature of the space industry in Australia. We, you know, there's some, some new players moving into the space industry that aren't from a scientific background, but the overwhelming majority are from science. And I think that helps with, with the values that we're trying to shape. We, you know, we, we recently redid our strategy for the association and having a charter of our values was really important, not just for our organisation, but for our aspirations for the industry. So we've actually set down some values around um, that, that we think the industry should sign up to uh, as it grows and, and expands. So, I mean, to, to talk about our, our sovereign capability, we, you know, Australia is a funny case. We, 
had all this space activity here in the 60s um, and the view is that we kind of missed, missed the boat or missed the opportunity um, but some recent scholarship uh, done by a guy called Tristan Moss at UNSW shows that actually we made a number of decisions not to develop space capability because it was all too expensive uh, and now we're seeing that problem being overcome so where Australia's strengths, we, you know, we have a few um, research satellites, small research satellites in orbit at the moment. Uh, we've got a defence research, research satellite that was launched uh, in February this year. Uh, we've got a lot of strengths in space situational awareness. We've got huge amounts of people who are good at analysing space data, space-derived data, particularly geospatial. And one of the reasons for that is um, because we've had space data provided to us for free for so long. Um, we're kind of a unique case in that regard. Uh, you know, we get all our meteorological data from Japanese satellites, for example, we get all our locational data from US satellites. So because we haven't had to pay to design that capability, we've been able to invest instead in, in people to analyze all that data. So Australia's evolution of capability in space has been quite unplanned. Um, but we, because of the strengths of our geography, our connectivity um, to international universities, I mean, Australia is in the top 10 countries in terms of the number of um, academic space papers cited every year. Um, but yet our own industry and particularly government spending on R&D for space has been so small for so long. But to, to add to what you were saying as well, James, I think it's important to think of the space sector as not just what's in space, right? Like the satellites that are in space are part of a system. So you have to think also about the ground segment, which are where you have um, satellite dishes, tracking stations, you know, the, the, the ground segment is what receives all of that data from those satellites for whatever purpose that might be. And then you have the link between them. So the whether that's infrared, whether that's radio waves, depending on what kind of satellite we're talking about. If it's an ob Earth observation satellite that we need, for instance, for meteorolo meteorological reasons or for tracking bushfires, that's different from a communication satellite. So it's not just what's in space. And we do have a huge, you know, Defence likes to talk about sovereign space capabilities and it will be developing uh, its own sovereign communication satellite so that we're not dependent uh, in particularly at, at key moments of tension or conflict so that we're not dependent on other countries. But but we have sovereign or Australian capabilities that are doing really important tracking work. Um, we're, we're definitely leaders in, in developing quantum communications. You know, there's many, many different parts of the space sector, not just the satellites that are up there in space. That's probably a good link to one of the statements you made in your paper, Cassandra, about Australia needs to be careful that as it develops its sovereign space capabilities, it does not accelerate a global race to the bottom. Are you able to expand a little bit on that? Yeah, and that, that really is around the security part of the safety, security, sustainability equation. Um, because, and again, another parallel to draw, I guess, is what's going on in space is just another domain in which international geopolitics are being played out and international competitions and commercial competitions. They're happening in space as on Earth. Um, and so because space is such an important strategic domain, um, we have seen more and more development of either counter space technologies or, as I mentioned, actual, you know, uh, anti-satellite missile missiles that have been tested by three countries to shoot and destroy one of their own missiles in space. Um, but the biggest threats 
are those are those counter space threats, um, uh, the non kinetic ones that I mentioned before. But what we're starting to see is a is a very typical security dilemma where you know the US stood up Space Force into end of 2019, and a lot of people laughed at the time because it came out of an administration that a lot of people didn't necessarily take seriously. We saw comedy shows written around it, um, but the Space Force had been debated for around ten years uh, or more in the US. Um, and it was stood up as a separate armed force to carry on some of the work of U.S. Space Command. But in doing so, it sent a very explicit message internationally, particularly to the U.S.'s peer competitors, to say, we are ready not only to defend our assets in space, but we are ready to take a conflict to space should should that happen. And there's been a lot of public statements coming out from top leadership in the U.S. saying, we've done this because China and Russia have weaponized space. But China and Russia, of course, see Space Force being stood up and hear these messages and say, but you're only doing, you know, the fact that you're doing that means that we need to ramp up our programs. We need to defend ourselves against the U.S.'s messaging about what's going on in space. So we're seeing we're seeing an escalatory cycle, an upwards escalatory cycle with some very concerning rhetoric. Um, Historically, obviously, the the superpowers, the U.S. and the Soviets, were were competing in space. That's what brought our first space race, and where space was the next domain in which these superpowers were aiming to demonstrate their technological superiority, their their political superiority. Um, but they very quickly realized through various nuclear and other tests that they were doing in space that there is no way to contain the impacts of those weapons tests. That you can't protect your own assets in space and that they were impacting their own and their and their allies' communication satellites while doing these tests. So very quickly they realized if they wanted to keep space accessible and usable for their own means, they needed to allow their adversaries to do the same. And that's why we have the Outer Space Treaty, which says no national appropriation in space, no nuclear weapons in space, and we have to use space for peaceful purposes. But we can use it for military purposes. We just can't start a war in space. It can't be for aggressive purposes. And that kind of strategic restraint is what, with some various ups and downs, what kept space stable and usable and, and, and safe over various decades. And we're seeing a move away from that shared understanding. We're seeing a move towards this escalatory cycle. And we need to make sure as middle powers, as, um, you know, in our allyship and partnership also with countries like Japan and Canada and the UK, these really important political players, we need to make sure that we are pushing for these norms of um, shared access and stability, safety, security, sustainability, and not jumping on the bandwagon of, you know, the next war is going to be in space and we, you know, we don't want to be on that bandwagon. We want to be on the bandwagon about ensuring that, that we can keep space stable. Sandra, can I ask you a question here? Um, so you mentioned the Outer Space Treaty and in many senses uh, states now challenging that seems to be part of the broader pattern of the so-called post-World War II rules-based order coming under challenge and fraying at the edges. Um, it's interesting to note that you know, that the US and Russia put their differences aside to do first the Antarctic Treaty, which we talk a little bit about, and the work of the National Security College is also something that's under challenge. And then modelled off that, we had the Outer Space Treaty that came along next. In terms of what a middle player like Australia can do in holding the tide, in 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 protecting something like that, what can we actually do and how can we do it? Because as you say, if parties all around the table and some pretty strong players, including the US, are playing with 
you know, are, are playing around the edges of that treaty and are potentially moving moving around a little bit. I mean, what can Australia do to hold the tide there? And indeed, should we? Is it something that we should say is the vestiges of, of the Cold War and we need something new? Or, or should we be holding the fort on that? I mean, I think we should absolutely be holding the fort on it we, and we need something new, right? Both of those things are true. Um, so the Outer Space Treaty, I often describe it as a constitution rather than a piece of legislation. It's a constitution because it paints broad general principles which lay out the values that were agreed upon in 1967, not only between the superpowers, the two superpowers. Um, it, it had immediate and very strong support from all of the post-Second World War powers. It also had very strong support from much smaller countries and then later from non-aligned countries and those that were becoming decolonized, decolonized um, saw the value in this constitutional document because it lays down values that guarantees access to all to space, it guarantees or promises that all countries shall benefit from activities in space. Um, it, you know, it, it lays down the values that we are not going to start a conflict in space or through space. Uh, and so it was seen as a domain that was opening something up for, for humanity. And these are all very uh, aspirational values, I guess, but that is exactly what the international community, dare I use that term, agreed upon at the time. Um, and in fact, the US is is pushing a little bit the boundaries of what is acceptable, particularly if we see what's starting to happen around the potential for a new industry of extracting resources in space and on the moon. Is that or is that not um, accepted under the Outer Space Treaty? The US is simply saying we interpret it such that it is. And there's a whole conversation that's starting now in the UN body, the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which is the body under which all of the space treaties were negotiated, um, about how, you know, what new regulatory um, mechanisms or new space law or new norms do we need for this new industry? But you can have that next to this constitutional document. We don't go back and change our constitution when technology changes, right? We, we come up with new regulation, new legislation. The constitution is the unchanging, unshifting document because it has your principles and values. Um, and so I think we absolutely need to hold forth on that. Um, but I don't think there are many countries saying that they don't value the Outer Space Treaty. Um, in fact, most countries, um, most states will use the language of the Outer Space Treaty to justify what they're doing. And that's what we see happening in international law all the time. You know, China will justify what it's doing in the, in the, in, um, with island building under international law. The US justifies everything that it does under international law. So we keep returning to the language to justify what we're doing, which in fact strengthens those documents. And we just have to figure out how we're going to interpret them and enforce them. Um, so we absolutely should be continuing to hold the fort on that. Um, and doing so, you asked how. Um, well, we need to be doing it in every single multilateral or quadrilateral or bilateral relationship that we have. And there's some work being done in academia around what's called polycentric governance in space that we can't just look to the UN body on this. We also can't just depend on um, you know, the US, for instance, with its new Artemis Accords, when we are looking at this new program to go to the moon and it's it's been kind of determining the rules of the game. But space governance is happening in lots and lots of different places. It's happening through G20 UN General Assembly. It's happening um, when we have bilateral trade agreements. It's happening, um, you know, it's happening in the quad. I think it's happened much more in the quad, but it is, it is on the agenda there. Um, it's happening also through industry, and I would love to hear James say more about that too because in, in some areas, particularly around that safety uh, the safety and sustainability part of the safety, security, sustainability equation. Industry is moving faster than governments. It's coming up with its own best practices and its own standards. Um, 
So what we need to do is just keep putting space on the agenda in every single one of those international interactions. And to do that, which is one of my key points in my paper, to do that, we need to have better space literacy across the government. Um, but I would be keen to throw Catherine's question then back to James <laughs> to hear what, what role you think industry has to play in that whole conversation. Yeah, I'm keen to hear from you, James, too, just on the sort of multilateral space, the role of industry, standard setting bodies and the importance of, of industry in that conversation. So maybe to answer that question first, I mean, I think industry has a role to play in second track diplomacy on space, which, you know, in some ways it's very active, but in some ways it's it's not as active as, you know, other areas of second track diplomacy. Um particularly, I think, around some of the security-related and strategic issues. Uh, so I think industry's got a role to play there. And, you know, it's interesting. We talk about industry. Our members range from very, very small shops. In fact, you know, one professional um, space industry, uh, space industry professional through to large multinational global prime companies. Um, so it's quite a diverse range of, of players. Uh you know, and on the question of what can Australia do to influence where this is all going, I sort of think the answer is, in a lot of ways, not a lot. Um, you know, NASA, for example, has set up a market now to anyone who is able to move a kilogram of moon rock on the surface of the moon. Now, the, Australia's view on that is going to be almost inconsequential. Not quite inconsequential, but almost inconsequential. Um, the US Congress is not going to be particularly attuned to what Australia has to say about mining of asteroids, which is a sort of recurrent issue which pops up from time to time. Um, but that's not to say we can't exercise any influence. It's just to say that we need to do it strategically and deliberately and, and in really targeted ways. So we've been a very active player uh, on the UN Committee um, for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. People like Dr Stephen uh, Freeland have been you know, really active voices on that, helping to shape norms there. Um, some of our other members are involved in discussions around um, the the moon and, and, in fact, the rights of the moon and, and what that means and whether, you know, Australia's undertaking to the Artemis Accords is consistent with that, which they would argue it's not. So, you know, I think there are a couple of key areas where we can have impact uh, and we've just got to choose that carefully. I think um, Cassandra was mentioned um, Japan, you know, Japan is a key player in space, both commercially and strategically. Australia's relationship with Japan on space is underdone. I think there's more conversations we could have with Japan and, and internationally um, together with Japan that would be consequential in shaping where this all goes. Are there other partners that you could identify that we should be looking to work closer with for opportunities? Oh, so look, there's so many, that's the problem, right? I mean, so South Korea is an active player on space. They're thinking about um, joining the Artemis Accords. There's uh, interest from South Korean companies in launching from Australia um, and, and other Asian countries are interested in launching from Australia. That's sort of a live topic at the moment. Um, the UK and Australia just signed a space bridge agreement, which uh, is looking at um, you know, things that our industries can do together. Um, you know, one of the questions I was asked there was, what can the UK do that's helpful for Australia in space? Insurance is a big one, right? Underwrites, literally underwrites everything that we're doing in this industry uh, and, and is because of, um, you know, the, the various treaties that Australia has signed up to. Um, that's a really critical issue. The UK's got strengths to bring to bear there. Um, 
the recurring question of whether Australia should join the European Space Agency uh, is one that some people are rethinking at the moment. I think we've been asked twice and we've said no. Um, but as we start to see more investment in space, there are some very compelling um, arguments for why we should do that. And then you look at all the diplomacy that's happening around uh, the square kilometre array, um, which is uh, you know, partly based in, in Western Australia. Um, there are a whole heap of company, countries involved in that, including China. Uh, and so you know, there is an international treaty that governs that, uh, and there is a lot of norm-shaping behaviour, uh, both in government and in industry, that is happening around the development of the square kilometre array as well. So I'm, I'm going to be the optimistic voice on um, on what Australia can do because I think, James, you actually just pointed to a number of areas where Australia does have a lot of impact on that on those international norms. So we're a middle player. We, we certainly can't turn the US's head and say, you know, regulation of space mining has to go this way because Australia says so. We, we do have a particular position because we are in a Venn diagram of exactly one country that has signed both the Artemis Accords and the Moon Agreement. Um, the Moon Agreement only has 18 other countries who've signed on to it. But that the Moon Agreement says when the technology is about to become feasible to undertake this kind of space mining, we are obliged to set up a, some kind of international regulatory regime. We have that international obligation. So that's, that's a conversation that a lot of people across government right now have their eyes on in, in Australia to, you know, what exactly is that obligation? How would we take steps on it? Um, so we can't, we, we can't be a big player. We're not a big player, but we can be an extremely impactful middle player for all of the reasons that, that James just outlined. Um, and, and because developing, continuing to develop the kind of norms that are going to keep space stable and accessible, that are going to really do more for safety, security and sustainability in decades to come, is only going to come through partnership. And and again, I'm optimistic about the fact that we're in this multilateral reality. It's no longer just a very small few elite who are determining the rules of the game. There's a lot, there's a lot of impact that can be had um, in in sheer numbers if we're all having those conversations across all of those platforms. And if it is linked particularly into all of these commercial and economic opportunities that there are, we, you know, Japan is an absolute key player, as James said, as is, as is Germany, um, for economic reasons and scientific reasons, well, that's exactly where we should be leveraging also the diplomatic opportunities. We'll be back after this short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I'm keen to explore this concept of space diplomacy a little bit more. 
Uh, we have Australia's Ambassador for Cyber Affairs and Critical Technology, uh, Tobias Feakin. And in your paper, Cassandra, you posed the idea of creating a, an ambassador for space. I wonder if, um, Catherine, you might like to talk a little bit about some parallels we might be able to draw and lessons learned from cyber diplomacy. Yeah, absolutely. I thought this is one of the really interesting recommendations in Cassandra's paper um, for a couple of reasons. First is there is a bit of a trend in the world at the moment for having thematic ambassadors. So rather than just uh, country posts, uh, ambassadors who have that level of seniority um, who can go and have conversations with their counterparts around the world on a, on a particular uh, issue of thematic importance. And I think for areas like cyber technology and space, which are inherently borderless and are dealing with global commons, it makes a lot of sense to have ambassadors um, who are uh, equipped and empowered to have those conversations not just with their counterparts as well, and this is a great point if you, um, for listeners who want to go back um, a couple of episodes ago to when we had the cyber and critical tech ambassador on the program, and he was talking about the way in which he, together with a group of his colleagues, um, heads to Silicon Valley, sets up shop for a couple of days and has the hard conversations with the great and the good of Silicon Valley um, and bridges that state industry nexus as well. So I think having a, a, a diplomatic lead in this area, um, certainly it's been something that's helped uh, Australia uh, put itself on the international agenda for cyber and critical tech. And if we want to lead conversations in space um, and, and have, have people in the room with their counterparts around the world in Japan, UK and so forth, there is an element of, of, of that does make an element of sense. The other thing I'd say, though, as well, is that in some senses in Australia, and this might be a controversial opinion, but I think a lot of our policy and a lot of our public awareness around cyber and critical tech is actually being driven by our diplomats. So it's interesting to me that one of the first major policy statements on critical technology from the Australian government was released by our foreign minister and is now being prosecuted by Ambassador Feakin. And so I think one of the reasons for that is because um, in cyber, and I suspect it's the same in space, one of the big challenges is reconciling security and economic interests. So in Australia, when we first started talking about the cyber problem set, it was very much about economics. It was all about e-commerce, the digital economy. And then in the last five to 10 years, that conversation shifted almost in the opposite direction to security, threat, risk, uh, locking this sector down. And we've then, since then, tried to bridge the two together. And that's a that's something that's played out across the world. In space, um, it seems, and certainly your paper, Cassandra, points out the way in which we often have these siloed conversations between those with an economic dog in the fight and those with a security dog in the fight. Um, but we need to elevate this up to a broader strategy. So it might seem odd for the foreign policy diplomat experts to be playing a role in domestic policy. But in some sense, I think it's inevitable when we're dealing with these really complex areas that are trying to mesh economics and security together, working with industry here in Australia and overseas and working with partners um, who are kind of foreign state governments, it does make sense that, and it may almost be inevitable that our diplomats are going to have to play an even stronger role in that discussion than historically um, they might have done. 
I think that's excellent. What you, the way you just outlined that, I think it also makes sense that they play that role in the sense of well, what you know, what are our values? Going back to the question that you asked, Dale, what are our values around space? Well, if we are looking most explicitly to those uh, in the international diplomatic arena and through our, our Department of Foreign Affairs, well, then that messaging domestically coming from there actually does make a lot of sense. And so the reason that um, that I recommend a thematic ambassador is because exactly that reason. It's got to bring the economic, the civil, the defense and the diplomatic all together. And so there, there is a, um, a kind of a working group, a, a space coordination committee, which is chaired by the space agency, which has representation from various different government departments. Um, but I don't think that's putting it at a high enough priority. And again, this is one of the lessons learned from cyber. It took us sort of you know, five to 10 years to really catch up with what was going on around the world and to start bridging those two conversations that Catherine just mentioned. We don't have time to spend five to 10 years figuring that out for space. We do not have time. And if we were to have a thematic ambassador, I think that would give the message both internationally and domestically, like people understand when you have a thematic ambassador, how important space is. At the moment, space falls under the ambassador for um, arms control and security. But if you look up the, the DFAT org chart online, Space is not mentioned. It's it's buried. It's embedded in the responsibilities of someone underneath that. Um, so it doesn't even get it doesn't even get a mention visually in what we consider to be organisationally our priorities. And if you have a thematic ambassador, that also makes it, I think, much easier to work across our different agencies. So the other thing that's quite unique, or is unique, I think, about our space agency is that its mandate is to support industry. It's there to grow jobs. It's there to support industry. It's not there to develop a civil space program the way that NASA does or JAXA, the Japanese space agency, the UK space agency. They all develop a space program that is government funded and run. And that is another way of identifying priorities and values. We don't have a civil space program. We have an agency that is to fund industry. And that's great in terms of seeing where our technological strengths already are, where, you know, where we can build the industry that's already there. Um, but it doesn't speak to values. And it also doesn't really, if you, if the aim is to have 20,000 jobs in the next several years, where are those jobs going to be coming from and what are they going to be doing? Are we just wanting lots of rocket builders and satellite operators? What about all these other space sectors we spoke about? What about the space lawyers and policymakers? What about the space educators? You know, there, there's, there's a whole gamut, the space archaeologists, the space historians, the, you name it, stick space in front of it. And all of that will help us to really have a much more, um, fulsome approach to all of these issues. Um, and so I, I do think having having an ambassador for an international purpose also serves a domestic purpose. Mm. James, did you have anything to add to that conversation about industry's role there? Oh, and diplomatic look, so sense? much. And I'm hearing so much there that I, you know, enthusiastically agree with. Um, we did a submission to the space industry parliamentary inquiry that's underway that, you know, made some very similar points. Where is this workforce coming from? How are we going to train it? Um, what is the right level of representation for space issues within government? You know, we, we didn't suggest a, an ambassador for space, but I think it's a great suggestion. Um, we made a suggestion around having a, uh, a national space advisor position in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to try and help coordinate between um, civilian and, and defence uh, issues. And Cassandra is right. Um, the space agency is small. It's still settling on its final shape. Uh, it doesn't have a budget for civilian space missions that's, you know, significant at the moment. Um, Australia, uh, amongst the G20 countries, is second last when it comes to spending on civilian space. Uh, and yet 
Defence has committed at least 10 to $15 billion on space in, uh, investment in the next few years. So if you ask what are the characteristics of Australian space industry at the moment, it's very lopsided towards defence. Now, there are good reasons for that, um, but we're, you know, our members, uh, the Academy of Science and others, um, are all arguing at the moment for uh, more funding for national civilian space missions on a long-term basis, not just sort of grants that, you know, small ad hoc grants, but long-term funding, decade or more, um, on national civilian space missions, whether that's things like um, you know, monitoring for fires from space, um, technology that helps monitor water conditions from space. Uh, you know, there's a thing called um, satellite calibration validation, which is another option. Um, space weather is another option too. You know, that we have a lot of skills in space weather. We could fund more work in that area. That's something we could actually export globally. So there's, there's a lot to think about there. And just to come back to your point of a thematic ambassador um, for space, um, we're not that far away from potentially needing a geographic ambassador for space. I mean, we've, we're have we part of uh, NASA's um, mission to the moon and Mars, and that calls for a presence on the moon towards the end of this decade. So it's now not a fantasy that, you know, people we know will be working and living in space potentially on the moon. It's a reality. And so Australia may well need an ambassador to the moon in the next 20 years or so, um, you know, a geographic ambassador. And when you say that, it sounds absurd. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's the reality of where we're going at the moment and the pace of development in, in space. Great job titles, though. Space ambassador, moon ambassador. <laughs> the, the competition in, in DFAT is going to be ruthless for those roles. <laughs> James, would you mind talking a little bit about the future of the Australian Space Agency and where that's headed? Yeah, no, look, I mean, the, the Space Agency has been around for a few years now. It's going to be reviewed uh, to see whether it's been successful. I, you know, I think our view is that it's been a booming success. Uh, we want to see it become a, a, a statutory agency in its own right um, with the right level of funding and, you know, the right kind of skills. Um, you know, we need to attract more Australians working in the space industry home, particularly to work in our space industry, uh, but also to work in the space agency. So, you know, that, that's certainly the message we'll be giving to government on behalf of our members. And, uh, you know, I think, I think having someone at the head of that agency who's got such excellent um, commercial experience is really helpful too. We've seen a change in direction. Yeah, I, I would back that 100%. It needs to become a strategy agency and it needs an awful lot more funding and um and personnel. I mean, I know that some people in the space industry are a bit frustrated at the pace at which things have moved. And sometimes there's been lack of clarity around licensing requirements. And I also know one or two people in defense have found it a bit frustrating the pace at which the, the space agency's roadmaps have been developing, which is them just figuring out where they're going to put their priorities. But the biggest challenge has just been personnel. They are completely understaffed. Everyone's doing 10 jobs instead of one. And there's only so much that a brand new young agency can do. Um, and it has great potential. But we are, you know, it goes back to what I think James and I have both been saying about this is the time is now. We need to be, we, the government across the board needs to be acting right now and really fast and giving this the resources that it needs in order for us to you know, to have that impact and to to jump in um, as effective as an effective um, space power and effective space player. Do we know what sort of sectors or roles the agency will be growing? 
Oh, so they're hiring at the moment for people in strategy, um, strategic policy, industry growth, uh, launch regulation. Um, so I think there'll be, you know, there'll be a lot of development in those areas. Um, it's also a vocational question too, right? Like a lot of the skills you need in the space industry are vocational too. So we need to have an eye on that. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, they they are focusing their energies right now on on writing the roadmaps, which is helping to identify where does Australia have existing strengths across various different um, parts of the space sector. Um, is that is that data and safe space situational awareness? Is it actual um, rocket launch? Is it access to space? Is it you know they have their seven priority areas? Figuring out where the Australian industry already has some leadership and could be supported with funding and with backing to really become leaders. And I, I think the idea is out of that jobs will come, but they won't come of themselves. It's not a case of if you build it, they will come. You have to provide the training and education to back that. And that piece is missing at the moment. And and also it, what's missing is we don't have a national space strategy or space policy. So in my paper, I pointed to the models of Japan's basic space law and the UK um, uh, national space policy, because that is their overarching document under which the, the civil and the defense and security and the diplomatic can then, um, they can be guided by that national story, that national perspective. We don't have that. We have these piecemeal bits and pieces. Um, and I think that would also, you know, again, having a thematic ambassador might help in terms of having an overarching vision because then you can also start to plug in a lot more and say, well, this is where the jobs will come. This is where we need the training and education. I feel like the strategy will also help us um, in a multilateral sense, positioning ourselves in negotiations, understanding what our overarching objectives are when we get together in that multilateral space. We've touched a little bit on um, yeah, diplomacy and multilateralism, but what are the big multilateral bodies that Australia engages in to influence? Yeah, for space in particular. So the UN's Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is the, I guess, prime um, organ which is focused on anything that doesn't have to do with arms control in space. Um, and it's a consensus-based decision-making body. So typically things are very slow and that is why it has been stalemated. It's starting to move again a little bit more around uh, how we're going to regulate uh, space mining. Um, there's the Committee on Disarmament, which is where there have been attempts to do work around uh, space arms control, but that has been stymied because it's been very politicised as to whether or not we want to actually have a treaty. Um, and then, of course, there's the UN General Assembly, which is that was the reason why the UK decided to take this General Assembly resolution on reducing space threats through norms, uh, principles and rules to the General Assembly to take it out of these bodies where it's been so politicised. But that's all within the UN space. I mean, the EU um, attempted several years ago to come up with a code of conduct that also got stymied for political reasons because the process, a lot of smaller countries felt it was much too Eurocentric. They weren't part of the actual drafting and um, um, uh, and even though they were consulted, they weren't part of the negotiations. So it 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 died a very quiet death. Um, so, I mean, those are lessons learned, right? There are, there are areas in the international space where we are already active, where space already is on the agenda. But it goes back to the point as, uh, as to why space needs to be on the agenda in every single multilateral or quadrilateral or bilateral conversation that we're in. And as you said, if we have a bit more of a national sense of 
why space matters and where we want to be placed with it, that can help us include space in other conversations. The sustainable development goals are dependent on space technologies, for instance. Um, our Pacific step up, what are we going to do with our regional partners? Some capability support, some capacity building might actually serve our interests. You know, space links into all these other uh, issues, again, in a similar way to how cyber does. So if we have a national uh, story, a sense of national value around what it is that we want to be doing in space, we can use that to leverage all of our other interests as well. So space systems have recently been labelled as a critical infrastructure under the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act. Um, Cassandra, should space systems be seen as critical infrastructure and what are the potential risks of calling it that? Um. I think they should be considered critical for interest. And they're critical. They're critical to our 21st century lives. Um, The the concern that I have is a little bit around the wording in that particular bill, which talks about the space industry as critical infrastructure. And I think that gets very muddy and unclear as to what what is that infrastructure then and what what does that mean? So as an as an international lawyer with a with a my background is in um, law of armed conflict in particular that instantly triggers a red flag for me because if something is designated critical infrastructure, if we find ourselves in an armed conflict, that makes that targetable. Uh, And do we really want to do that with our entire space industry? So another complicated factor with uh, space systems is that they are almost always dual purpose. There are very few satellites which are only serving a military purpose. There are some, but only a few. Most communications data or even intelligence data um, is being provided both to the military and for civilian or commercial purposes. Um, Earth observation data, for instance, could be used for search and rescue or could be used for intelligence. So it's very hard to separate out and say this satellite is a military satellite and could be targeted and this one is a civilian object and can't be targeted. We can't do that. And then, again, because the space sector, the, the space system is made up not only of what's in space but also the link between and the ground segment, it's very hard to identify whether something as a military object or a civilian object, um, in, if we do find ourselves in times of conflict. I mean, obviously that's an extreme situation, but I, I have question marks about that. Um, and so the definitions I think probably could do with a little bit more refining, but it is, it's certainly critical to our 21st century lives and should be given that, uh, that level of importance. I'll just jump in there, Cassandra. One of the things you raise in your paper, which I think is an excellent point, is around levels of literacy, space literacy, in the Australian government and also society writ large. And I do think one of the things that the Critical Infrastructure Act, um, so-called the Stocky Act, does is it raises awareness for the new sectors that are listed um, as being critical infrastructure. So it's, and, and in particular, it extends critical infrastructure from, I would kind of call it the poles and wires 20th century infrastructure that we think of when we say the word infrastructure to some of the more 21st century types of infrastructure, be that space technology or data centres, some of these things that are going to be really imperative to our future, but that sometimes are really difficult for a policymaker to to grip up and understand, indeed, even a member of the public um, to grip up and understand, and the sectors themselves and the businesses in in those sectors to understand the national significance and the mission of the work that they do and the way in which it can contribute or detract from Australia's prosperity and security. So I think even just from the perspective, and I know this is never going to gain traction with a lawyer, but just from the perspective of messaging, I think this legislation 
um, is really important. Um, and I would add on on the point of definitions, absolutely agree. There's a lot of work to do to to nail down precisely what it is that we mean when we're labelling new sectors as, as critical infrastructure because you obviously it's it's not very helpful if you just capture everything. You need to prioritise and understand and map. But I do think that's one of the things that the legislation is trying to do and is trying to create space to do to generate the transparency about who's doing what in the sector, to generate uh, an ability to identify and map what matters most. So, of course, the devil's in the detail. We don't know what it's going to look like, particularly for space yet, but the optimist in me says that this is a good starting point. And also the nationalist in me says, hey, Australia got space on the agenda, the critical infrastructure agenda before the US did. Um, the House is just this, a new House bill this month that would label um, critical infrastructure in the US as, as oh, sorry, space as critical infrastructure in the US. So it's always nice when we, um, we have the foresight to get there first. So my, my experience on this issue uh, has been trying to help our members navigate the potential cost consequences of this critical infrastructure bill. So we've been keenly engaged. And I agree, you know, it's it's good that we're thinking expansively about critical infrastructure and that space is on that list. Um, but it does force the question of what's critical and what's not. And that's, you know, we haven't quite got there. So Optus's ground station for the NBN satellite at Belrose, clearly critical, nationally significant critical infrastructure. Um, but just down the road at Brookvale, you've got a precision watch manufacturer who has skills and advanced machining. They now consider themselves to be part of the space industry and are potentially caught up under this act. And if you have to sort of implement all the critical infrastructure requirements, it's cost prohibitive. It would put some of our people out of business. I'm thinking about three engineers at UNSW who are running this fascinating business called HEO Robotics, which like basically borrows spare time on satellites. It's like the net jets of satellites. Um, they would be put out of business if they had to implement all the critical infrastructure requirements. So we've had a lot of detailed discussions with home affairs to make sure that, you know, things in the space industry will be turned on slowly and selectively and, and mostly, you know, through ministerial instruments rather than a blanket broad brush way. Um, but, you know, it, it is forcing that awareness of space, your space literacy issue that both of you have talked about is really critical. Um, you know, there's a lot of education work to be done. Um, we, we use some OECD definitions of what the space economy is and what space industry is. Um, but as my, as my chairman uh, says all the time, you know, the, the great Australian space companies of the next 10 years don't know they're Australian space companies yet. They're going to be operating in adjacent industries but they're going to see problems that they can solve in or from space or opportunities that they can develop in or from space. Catherine, building on your optimism in your comments earlier, if I could frame this as a bit of a futures analysis exercise, if we're thinking blue sky opportunities, uh, what sort of messages would you like our listeners to come away with, policymakers, members of the public, in terms of the opportunities for Australia in this area? I think we shouldn't be shy or timid about understanding how Australia can influence this space and also appreciating the successes that Australia has had for decades in the space sector. Just reading Cassandra's paper reminded me that Australia is a space leader and Australia Australian diplomats have a history of, of, of productive contribution to conversations around arms control and are establishing our reputation now as 
um, a powerhouse of critical technology and cyber norms, I think that's something we should embrace and absolutely um, not be back. We, we should um, continue to, to lead. James, from an industry perspective and someone that's familiar with policymaking, have you got any uh, final comments that you'd like to put forward on opportunities for Australia? Uh, just that I think it's tremendously exciting what we're about to do in space and, you know, the fact that we're dealing with all these baseline sort of foundational problems, definitional problems shows where we're at. We're just at the beginning. Um, some of the stuff that's coming out of Australian companies at the moment, I mean, there's a company on the Gold Coast called Gilmore Space who not only are developing their own, you know, launch vehicles, but they're talking about developing a uniquely Australian class of satellite that kind of is in... It's like the middle power satellite. It's not small. It's not big. It's right in the middle, uh, and that's going to that's, that's help us, you know, do a lot of stuff. And they're, they're going to create a whole industry around that. So, I think that's tremendously exciting. And you know, I had a conversation with the CEO of one of our banks the other day about space, uh, and she said to me, you know, the first my first love, the first job I wanted to do was to be an astronaut, and that just wasn't a possibility in Australia. Well, you know that limitation is not there anymore. So that's tremendously exciting for people who are going to have careers in this industry over the next 10 to 20 years. Very exciting. And I might finish up with you, Cassandra, please. Some of your final thoughts. And again, thoroughly enjoyed your policy options paper. It's given us all a lot to think about. What are the kind of key messages you'd like our listeners to take away? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in fact, I share exactly what Catherine and, and James just shared about their optimism and their enthusiasm is there's so much, there's so much going on already. And in some ways we are at a kind of starting point, but we also don't have to start from the beginning. There's so much to be learned in particular in the, in the policy and diplomacy area from cyber. You know, there's expertise across government now. There's whole career paths based on based on that cyber expertise. That in fact, we just we need to plug into lessons, literally from the knowledge base those individuals have, as well as institutionally. Um, and also to be to be just connecting all the dots across the country. I mean, you know, I work in the university sector, so obviously I'm going to say something about that. But that is where your twenty thousand jobs are going to come from. So there needs to be investment in the university sector, but every single other aspect of um, of what's going on in space in Australia can plug into universities. You know, the space agency can be plugging into universities with internships and that kind of thing, for instance. Defence already is plugging into universities a little bit, but they could be plugging into us um, for their training, for their education, um, for R&D, and also, you know, for, for, for recruitment, to be quite honest. You know, where is the talent coming from? Um, and if we do plug into the university sector to to aid in that space literacy, you know, this is where the knowledge is. This is we we could be providing education to government, to industry, to to anyone wanting to enter into this sector. I think it's difficult in the post pandemic world where the university sector sector is absolutely struggling. But what you're starting to see amongst universities themselves is that we're plugging into each other as well. So I'm part of the ANU Institute for Space. Um, we're just we're just signing off um, with a final partners to set up a national consortium of multidisciplinary space institutes, so that we can leverage each other's knowledge and support each other rather than be competing against each other for funding and for knowledge and for talent. Um, so if the university sector is doing that, if the space industry is doing that, we just need to be connecting all of the dots across the board. And that is how we can not only become 
you know, leaders in the industry and have all those economic benefits, but we can also be making that that impact in terms of shaping norms internationally. We have a huge opportunity anno 2021 and in the years to come, um, and Australia just needs to um, own that opportunity and own the kind of leadership that it can take. Well, thank you all. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope our listeners appreciate the um, the amount of expertise that we, we have in the room today. Uh, Dr. Cassandra Steer, James Brown and Catherine Manstead, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to the National Security Podcast and to give the show a rating wherever you listen. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.